A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And are you ready for the Duff McKagan joke of the week? Hey, Chris Jericho. It's Duff McKagan. Hope you're doing well. Hope everybody's doing well. Listen, a couple cows were smoking weed and playing poker. Yeah, the stakes were high. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. Duff delivers like clockwork with or without laughs every single Friday. I actually thought that was pretty funny. Thank you, Duff. But the show today is no laughing matter. The hometown ghost stories boys are back. Rob, Dave, and Jesse return to tell the creepy tale of the Velisca axe murder house. It's a true crime story with a paranormal element mixed in. Eight brutal murders were committed at that home in Velisca, Iowa on June 10th, 1912. There were a few suspects, but the proprietor was never actually caught and the case was never truly solved. That's all I'm going to say about that because the hometown ghost stories boys are going to break down the case, share evidence, theories, suspects, and explain how the paranormal elements fit in. And if you haven't checked out hometown ghost stories, you can listen for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join the guys live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right, it's time for the tale of the unsolved mystery of the Velisca Axe Murder House right here, right now. On Talk is Jericho. Everything was hazy. The man couldn't remember where he was or where he had been. It was dark. He was sitting behind a box in an attic, and an axe lay next to him as he heard the sound of children playing and getting ready for bed. It all began to come back to him. How long had he been reliving this very night? One year? Ten years? One hundred? Either way, it always starts the same. In an attic, behind a box, next to an axe and he could only watch through his own eyes, like being stuck in a painting, as his body began to move on its own. The sounds of the children and couple had stopped, and no one was moving in the house. There was no stopping himself, no matter how much he tried, how much he struggled. The man headed towards the attic door. As he did, his internal panic set in. Please, God, make it stop. 
I don't want to see it again. This was futile. He was in the hall now and headed towards the master bedroom. The man approached the sleeping married couple, raised his axe, and brought the blunt side down on the husband's head, fiercely and swiftly. Without pause, the man raised the axe ferociously, and before bringing it down, got the axe stuck in the ceiling. As the wife began to wake, he yanked it out, turned it around, hitting her with the bladed side in the face repeatedly. The man's conscience had a sick feeling as he knew what came next. He turned around and headed to the children's room, where the couple's four children lay sleeping. The man internally was trying something, anything, to get his body to just drop the axe and run, but it was useless. He was destined to repeat this day for the rest of eternity. The axe raised and the blunt side came crashing down on each child. The body stood there to admire its work. While the man watching from inside began to feel sick, this wasn't over but he had given up on trying to stop it. He was as much a coward in death as he was in life. His body began to move back down the stairs, towards the room where the final two girls were sleeping. The man creeped in and took out the younger girl the same way as the rest of the children. The older sister began to wake. The stranger smiled slightly at her as she looked up, and he brought the axe down one more time. Internally, the man knew they were all dead, but it wasn't over. He watched as his body went back to each room and took sick pleasure in mauling the bodies repeatedly. And then it stopped. A few moments of pure blackness. Then the haze creeped in. He was sitting in the attic and heard the sounds of children playing and getting ready for bed as he sat behind a box next to an axe. I'm Rob Coakley, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, The Axe Murder House, Villisca, Iowa. So, uh, we've come a long way from the uh, basement of the uh, venue in Providence. And now look at you guys. You're, 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 the hometown ghost stories have got their own studio. you got lighting rigs. Uh, you guys have hit the big time now. And you just told me, Rob, that you are now with, uh, with Bloody Disgusting. Yeah, man. We, we recently signed with Bloody Disgusting, which is for their podcast channel is now Bloody FM. But really exciting stuff for us to be with them and how did that come about we started talking to tom owen who is like one of the founders of bloody disgusting and he was he, he liked our show a lot and he wanted to bring us in and it was just kind of a easy and natural marriage almost right it's they're all about horror we're all about ghost and we just kind of united well it just fits so you guys have been tracking me down here um to do another episode another another uh, story and would, would, last time what did we do again it was the uh, most haunted house in america yeah sally house the sally house yeah sally house right so we were discussing some topics and and like i said this is your guys's expertise and i'm the layman here and we threw on a couple ideas and what we finally decided on was the vasilla axe murder house Almost got it. Yeah. Velisca. Velisca. Yes. <laughs> and I know nothing about it. I Googled it and, and read a quick uh, rundown here on Wikipedia. But I want you guys to take me through this the same way that you did with the most haunted house in America, the Sally House. And let's kind of go through all of the uh, stories about this murderous house here in uh, Velisca. So it's it's going to be more of a like split thing between true crime and 
paranormal because there's a mixture of both. We like them both here on Talk is Jericho. Right. So I thought it was perfect. We can talk about some true crime. We can talk about. Don't put your chocolate in my peanut butter and don't put your true crime (laughs) in my uh, ghost stories. (laughs) So Villisca was a town in Iowa that was, well, is a town in Iowa that was founded in like the mid 1800s. And when they founded this town, they called it Villisca because the guy founding it thought that Villisca meant pretty place by the Native Americans of the land. However, Villisca actually means evil spirit, which is going to flow real well into this story. We're going to start on 7 a.m. June 10th, 1912. Mary Peckham is the neighbor of the Moors, and she's real close to the family. She knows the, the husband and the wife, Josiah, and their children really well. And she's looking, usually at this point in time, they're up, there's a lot of children playing and laughing. The animals are out, they're getting fed, they have like a couple cows, some chickens, and she's looking and she's noticing nobody's feeding these animals, nobody's letting them out, the kids aren't playing, so they're like, what is going on here? So she goes over, she knocks on the door, and nobody answers. A little bit while goes by, and she's a little more nervous, and she calls the brother of Josiah. Josiah's brother Ross comes over. And he starts knocking and walking around the house and trying to get in and everything is shut and everything is blacked off in the windows. They can't even see in the house. And they're like, well, this is real strange. We're not used to this coming to the house. It's, it's a lively house. Like I said, there's, they have four children. So he has a key and he opens the door. And as he walks in the door, a smell hits him. And he's like, what? It's this terrible stench. And he walks in and on the downstairs, there's a bedroom that's part of the parlor. It's called like a parlor bedroom in the time. And he sees two dead bodies in a bed that are mutilated and there's blood everywhere. So he runs out of the house. He tells Mrs. Peckham to call the police. The police come. And as they come, they enter the house. They walk through it. As the police officer comes up back out, he says, my God, Ross, there's a dead body in every bed. And that's when they first find these murders of the Velisca Axe Murder House. Wow. Yeah, so it was six kids in the house, two adults. Everybody was killed with the backside of an axe, except for one. I believe the mother was actually hit with the, the sharp end. And there were four kids in the family, and they had two friends that stayed the night. So that was a terrible night for them to happened to sleep over the house. And these were neighborhood kids. They were friends. They were all at church the previous night. They had agreed to do a little sleepover. So they brought them over. And yeah, so the friends were Lena and Ina Stillinger. And basically they were playing at the house all day. And there was this big church gathering that night for the children that Sarah Moore, which was Josiah's husband, organized. The, The Stillinger girls called home to see if they could stay the night. Her parents weren't home. So an older sister gave permission for these girls to stay over. And they were walking there. And a crazy thing about this story is the town was in a fight with the electric company. So at this point in time, all of the streetlights were blacked out. So think of a town that you're going through, right? And there is no lights at all. You were just walking in the absolute black of night. And they're walking home in this very pitch black area. And what they think happened is this guy that did whatever he did, he was we're going to get into some of like his other crimes later, but they think that he had walked by the house earlier in that day and saw one of the Stillinger girls and was very infatuated with her 
And when they went to church, he either hid in their barn or he broke into the house and hid in their attic. So this guy is hiding in their attic while they're gone, probably, because they found some cigarette butts in there. And he's sitting in there while they come home, while they're getting ready to bed, and he's just waiting for them to go to sleep before he emerges from the house with an axe that he took from their front yard, which is another key thing. He commits all his murders with an axe. But when you think of axe murders, you think of like hitting with the with the bladed side, like Jesse said. He always hit with the blunt side of the of the object to take out his victims. There was a few things with the crime scene as well, like um, in the parents' bedroom. You could still see it today. There's actually an indentation like a hole in the wall basically from him swinging the axe over his head mm. and it hit the wall behind him and it got stuck and i think at that moment maybe he panicked and hit him with the front side of the axe and the reason that he he hit with the back side of the axe was he's killing so many people you know if someone wakes up if the husband wakes up if the kids wake up then the whole situation goes awry not that it could get any more chaotic than this but you know for his procedure, it's everyone stays in their bed, everyone stays asleep, and he just beats them all to death. If you hit him with the sharp side of the axe, you run the risk of that axe getting stuck inside someone's skull, and then Jeez. you know your timeline's off. Someone someone could wake up and, and retaliate or whatever. So uh, that's why he always used the backside. But in in this house, in a few of the rooms, you can still see the markings on the wall and even on the ceiling at points that he was just basically almost like he was dancing, just in a fit of glory, just smashing everybody with this axe. And it wasn't that he just hit everyone once. He went around the house and and bludgeoned these people and then went back into the rooms and would hit each one, what, 30, 40 times? Yeah, it's, it's a bunch of times. And it's it, there's an interesting way that we know this, too. We can talk about the police work of the time. There wasn't fingerprints in the way that we know it now. This is back in 1912, right? Yes. Right. Now, when you mentioned that, and what do we have a name on this guy? What did you say? So we're going to get into some of the suspects, but there's one that it most likely is. Okay, so before we get into that, so you said he always hit with the reverse side of the axe. You're talking about always within these murders in this house. It's not like this, had this suspect killed other people the same way, or you just talked about he, just in the house he was doing this. So this story went unsolved for a very long time. What happened recently was somebody wrote a book, and a, uh, basically a sports writer went through and just got into the story, and they spent close to a decade connecting this story with other cases very similar to it all around the country, all proximate to railroads. So this guy was basically, their theory is he was going from train station to train station all around the country, murdering families uh, with the exact same MO and a lot of the same details. And they said it was just too much of a coincidence for it to be different people doing the same exact crime over and over. Mm -hmm. That's our going theory. That's a lot of common people i mean that's that's a lot of people's theory right now there were suspects in this case though and i mean the crime scene was a mess as rob had alluded to earlier i mean this is a really small community and everybody knows everybody so as soon as word got out that this whole family and their you know and two other girls from the neighborhood had all gotten butchered with an axe everyone showed up to the crime scene and they said that at first they did a good job of keeping people out of it but it didn't last basically hundreds of people I think it was around 100, right? 100 people trampled this crime scene trying to just go see what was going on in this house and get a look at this, this absolutely disgusting scene. People were stealing things. They're obviously trampling through the crime scene. One person, I think, tried to take a, a piece of the father's skull. as like. Well, he didn't try. He took a piece of it and put a shrine up in his store. So when you walked into this guy's establishment, a piece of Josiah's skull was on display, oh which is ridiculous. 
But this is common in the time. You go back to the 1900s to 1910s, when people heard of crimes like this or whatever, they would show up and they would walk through the crime scene and they would start taking mementos. If somebody's house burnt down, they would go to the house and they would take mementos of the house burning down. Hmm. The general public was much, and it's only a hundred years ago, but today we couldn't fathom it, right? Right. Like you just would never think that that would happen. So, well, like you said too, you know, the detective work back then, there was no CSI. Right. It was probably obviously very, very primitive. And so, why wouldn't you want people walking through the crime scene? You can't take fingerprints or whatever, anyways, or maybe you could, but you definitely had no DNA or infrared lights or anything like that, right? Yeah, you had no no fingerprint database to go off of. Fingerprinting was like in its infancy. It was like just starting out then. And it wouldn't even be viable until another 60 or 70 years down the road from then. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key, and learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. 1800s they're still shooting people in in western towns and kind of you know vigilante justice so this might still be kind of the infancy of even the criminal justice system as well well it's interesting you bring that point up because with all these cases that are connected a lot of lynchings happened and what they would do is they would either find the town drunk or the town like thief or something and they would blame him for it they would be like well, you know, this guy, he he stole $20 one time, so he definitely murdered a family with an axe. It, it's got to be because they would try to – everything had to make sense to them, right? Like the fact that there's a guy just killing people because he liked to kill people didn't register to them. It just – it couldn't happen. It was this guy, he did it for a reason, but nothing was ever stolen. There was always money left at these places, and the public was just like, well – It's got to be one of the bad people, or unfortunately, they would do it based on the color of your skin as well. One case, three African-American men were strung up and killed because they were suspected of a crime that they probably didn't commit. Well, I I mean, if you watch the documentary that was just on, I believe, Netflix with the Son of Sam even, here we are in 1979, 1980, almost 70 years later. And there's a theory that there was a, a number of sons of Sam's, but they just pinned it on Berkowitz just so they could get their conviction, wrap it up in a nice bow, 
New York City's happy and they just keep moving on. So this is kind of a primitive version of that. Well, let's just kill the town or, you know, lynch the town drunk, blame it on him and everybody's happy. And the, and the, and the sheriff gets an extra check on his badge and let's move on. You're absolutely right. And then this was this was indicative of the time. And at the time, the, the idea of a serial killer or like a traveling serial killer wasn't as big as it was in like the 80s or 90s or even the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. So that then you start learning about all these insane serial killers and what they're capable of. This wasn't really a thing. Also, like police departments and detectives, like they didn't contact, for the most part, different ones from different states or different towns even. So they, they weren't cross-referencing files about... What were the tendencies? What were the situations? What was the scene of the crime like? What were the circumstances of these deaths like? And, tr- and, and see if maybe it does compare with another axe murder. There's a surprisingly large amount of axe murders, as we found out within this certain time frame. But I think before we get too far off, you know, and start going into ideas on serial killers and, and other crimes, let's stay focused on this one. I, I, there are certain elements in this that are extremely important. And this was how the, how the scene was after. Yeah. The killer had covered all the windows up right so he he drew the shades on all these windows he also covered up all of the mirrors which is a really interesting thing And when we start talking about the haunting i think we get back to that let's not forget about that point he had covered up all the mirrors he had covered up those and uh what were some of the other elements in the crime scene guys so there was also he lit his way by like a oil lantern with a wick so what he would do is he would split this wick and this happened at numerous of the stories we're going to cover he would split the wick of the lantern to make the light dimmer. Interesting. It's very specific, right? Like that's super specific. He would position the body. He'd reposition the bodies posthumously yeah. on just about every single one of these cases. The bodies were always moved. And you already mentioned that he would also cover the windows on all of them and lock the house up. What do you mean reposition the bodies? After he would kill everybody in the house, he would move them all. Like there's one case where he stacked them all in a pile. Typically he'd pick one of like the adolescent girls and he'd move their body one way like just reposition them and move them around wow but that was always a recurring thing with all these cases that he would do gotcha and just to go back to the oil lantern there's a, the top of the oil lantern is called the chimney and the chimney would always be found underneath a bureau or something underneath a piece of furniture almost like a signature kind of it's just weird who else if it wasn't the same guy how would everybody be doing this right so like it's real strange so that's another reason why we think that like this guy and again this guy went to a house he killed eight people without anyone knowing swiftly got away as you've covered serial killers you know like that first murder is never that easy so think about that with eight people Mm -hmm. this guy knew what he was doing Right. He had his ritual at this point is what we'll say. If you go back to Ted Bundy, one of my favorite, well, I don't know if I want to use the word favorite, but quotes from Ted Bundy is like his first murder, everything he tried to plan out perfectly. Everything was the like he tried to have everything established. And he was like, by his 13th, he's like, uh, where did I leave the tire iron again? Right. Right. So like, but this guy knew what he was doing is the point. Mm-hmm. So we had all these overlapping pieces of evidence from every single one of these houses for the most part where he had a ritual also he would clean up afterwards so he would clean the axe he would leave the axe back there and there was usually always a bowl of bloody water left on either the kitchen table or the sink so again how often do we think that everyone that's murdering somebody with an axe is doing the same thing like this yeah this wasn't really the era of copycat killers either. Like it, it did make newspapers. I think this was like one of the few stories that actually made the front page over 
continuous Titanic sinking coverage. Right. Yeah. This was uh this was one of the few stories that did hit front page news, but they, they there were elements of the crime scene that they obviously didn't release within that news article. So the whole copycat killer thing was not what it is today. Not at all. But they, but to stick with Velisca, they did have their suspects. And I think the strongest case was probably this guy named Reverend George Kelly, who was a real creep. And he was also just a crazy person. And I think I believe out of the suspects, he was the only one. He actually confessed to the crime. And we'll use air quotes around confessed. But this guy was was likely he's he seems to be like everyone's favorite suspect. So I, I'm gonna let one of you guys talk about it more in depth, but but to me, I think he's probably is he universally the most favored suspect besides the one that we're gonna touch on a little bit later. So he is generally the one that people would will point to because of the confession. But if you look at his confession, it was really led. Like the detective's like, and then you went back into the house and you did this, right? He goes, Oh God, why did I do that? I must have done that. And then they're like, and then you did this, right? And he's like, <laughs> Oh man, I must have done that. Why did I do it that way? Because they had been beating them. They had kept, you know, they starve people. And it goes exactly. They also, back. the de- detectives also planted a, um, a, a fake cellmate with him. So he thought that the cellmate was just a common thief. And it was actually the guy was working for the detectives. And the guy was in the cell with them saying, oh, you should just confess. Your life's going to be so much easier if you just confess. And then he did. But the most important thing is he later recanted that confession. Right. In this confession, he got a bunch of facts wrong and they tried to lead him back on the right path. Like, well, no, 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 no. You did the, you know, you hit the parents first, didn't you? He's like, well, no. Well, I suppose I didn't kill the kids first. It was just, it was clearly a bullshit confession. When you look at the overview of the facts, you're like, oh, this guy confessed. Obviously, he's the killer. And he was a creep. He was an absolute weirdo. Yeah. He was called Reverend George Kelly. Sort of like an intern at the time. He was changing professions frequently. He went to the to ministry. He was actually a guest that night of the minister that was hosting that church event. So he was at that event with the Moore family. But then he went back to the minister's house and slept there. And they said his bed was slept in. Some of the other evidence for him is he left right away at five in the morning to go home on the train, which like it's 1912. What the hell else is he going to do? Right. Yeah. He allegedly on that train ride had confessed to a couple or at least told them like, Hey, you know, the whole family got murdered in Villisca. And this was before anybody found the bodies. However, I think that was debunked later on. I don't Yeah. Think- it ended up being at a later date and time. So mm-hmm. again, everyone wants to be the star of a show is something I bring up constantly. So like this couple was like, this is our chance to be part of this. Right. So we can say that they said this to us and everything. So there was that also he, he was a real weak and meager man physically and stuff. So it's like, he didn't have the capacity to do what was done in that house. Going back to the man from the train, the book, they said like, basically if 95% of us were capable of doing that, which we're not, he would have been in the 5% that are not capable Gotcha. because of the way he was. So, you know, you start thinking in those terms, it's like, yeah, this guy was not the guy who did it. But an- another thing he did is he, he was fascinated by the murders and he tried to implement himself into the crime scene by lying and saying he was a cop. He wanted to go see the crime scene afterwards. So that's why this guy is like one of the guys that they think could have done it, but just everything else that adds up, it doesn't make sense for him to be the guy that did it. Yeah. He ended up getting arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was like sexually harassing this woman who applied yeah. to be his secretary. 
he's like, well, if you want to be my secretary, you must send me naked pictures of yourself. Or something <laughs> yeah. along those lines. I think, wow. I, I think she was a minor too. So it was like, <laughs> and he was like the, he was like the town peeping Tom as well. I think we forgot that, that little tidbit. Let's just for one second, send me a picture. Yeah. It's, it's not like the selfie where you can just do this. You got to get the yeah. old school yeah. camera with the big flash. That goes yeah. <laughs> Or hire, hire someone to do an oil painting if you're like, hang on, I'm <laughs> yeah. the secretary job. Well, and speaking of oil painting, one last thing, and not to dwell on it, but I just think it's it was a throwaway line that you said that this case made it to the headlines of the paper, taking over coverage of the Titanic. Yeah. Just that, like, this is crazy to me, like, just how long ago this was, but the Titanic was the number one thing, and this this kill kind of supplanted that. So that, I just thought that was an interesting, interesting point that you kind of made there. Yeah. It shows how big the story was. Right. Exactly. Exactly. At the time it was huge. And, and to piggyback off that a little bit, even though it was in the newspaper, there are some of these murders that happened like 50 to a hundred miles away, but they might as well have happened in Japan just to go back to the whole, these police forces didn't talk to each other. They didn't cross like county lines. Right. But it might as well have been in a completely different planet at that point. You could be a serial killer and just kill in every state. And nobody would ever know. How many do you think there were pre-1970 that were actually going around doing this? There had to be so many that we just oh, yeah. will never know about because people didn't connect it. And even that's how Bundy was able to go as long as he did was that Florida never connected with Oregon or Washington or whatever it was, and neither one knew what what had happened with this guy. Yeah, it's interesting. Pride gets in the way. This was before the FBI existed. This was before even state police existed. So there was just nobody would ever do like cross referencing, and nobody would ever think to go call these like anywhere else to like see if similar things were happening. Right, which would be like one of the first things that police would do nowadays. Was there ever any motive from Reverend George for for killing this one particular family? Do we know anything about that? For him, no. Like they just basically that he he was a weirdo. We talked about it earlier. You find your town weird. Right. The other suspect they was Frank Jones, who was a state senator. They tried to come up with a motive for him. And basically you had like the Pinkerton detective agencies of the time that would go to these places and they had one named Agent Wilkerson. We'll just hit on this quick, but he pinned out this state senator, Frank F. Jones who Josiah Moore used to work for until Josiah Moore went and opened his own store. Supposedly he was taking some business from Frank Jones and there was rumors that Josiah was having an affair with his daughter-in-law as well, which was all unsubstantiated stuff. Basically this guy came in as an agent and found this stuff out and was like, well, I'm going to pin it on him. And he said that he did it through another person named William Mansfield who was had an alibi that he was somewhere else. But this went on for years and years and years with this. And it actually ruined Frank F. Jones' political career over it. Wow, of course, yeah. This is what people were doing at the time. Like they were finding angles to make money. And this agent, he was getting paid to be there. So if he could stay there and keep getting paid, he stayed there and kept being to keep being paid. And uh, that's the way it goes back then. It's just, it's sad. It still happens today. You had a couple other suspects as well. You had Sam Moyer. He had threatened to kill Josiah Moore at some point, but he had a strong alibi, so he was pretty quickly ruled out. And then the other one you had briefly mentioned was William Mansfield. His nickname was Blackie. He was suspected of it. Um, I, I don't. How did he get out of it? I believe he had an alibi as well. He had airtight alibis. He was not in Velisca the night of the murder. He was like hundreds of miles away. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so like it just shows you what they were doing. Um, and just to go back to Reverend Kelly, we talked about him like being a sexual deviant, right? So. Another piece of evidence in this case that happened, 
And I'm not sure how much you like bacon, Chris, but you might not like it after we talk about this. <laughs> but basically, by one of the beds, they found this hunk of bacon that this man used to pleasure himself afterwards when he was done with the murders. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've eaten bacon since I covered this story. Hopefully it wasn't cooked. <laughs> <laughs> sounds painful. <laughs> There's a three-pound slab of bacon. That's a lot of bacon. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So we have all these different suspects. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming uh, where you guys are leading this is that they never found out who did this. Nope. Still technically unsolved. Yep. This one unsolved. Yeah. Gosh. But that leads us to Paul Mueller or Paul Miller. It all depends on how you want to pronounce it. This German immigrant that we think was the man from the train. And we can talk a little bit about some of his other his other cases right now, if you'd like. Please. Right. So in the book, The Man from the Train, which is a, an awesome book, they did such a good job of like describing and, and linking everything together. They eventually get towards Paul Miller and they say, to find this guy, we're going to have to go back and find his first crime because on his first crime, that's where he's most likely to make some mistakes. Because as we mentioned towards the end of this and with other serial killers as well, they get more confident with these things. Right. The time span in between their murders gets shorter and shorter because they, they grow more confident. And if you go back to the very first murder, this is where he had made a few mistakes and this is where they believe this whole thing started off. Right. So it actually started in Sturbridge, Massachusetts in the late 1890s. They connected it to, like Jesse said, this German immigrant named Paul Miller, and he had murdered the uh, family who had employed him. And he had murdered uh, the family, the, the father, the mother, and the children with the blunt side of the axe. And then he hopped on the train and went on to the next town. But this murder was a lot sloppier than all of his other murders. Like he, he didn't clean anything up. He rushed through it. He was also seen leaving the scene of the crime. So right. before they realized what was going on, he was seen walking away and, and somebody, I don't know who spotted him, but someone was like, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, where are you heading? And he just didn't say anything, just kept walking, just get on the, he got on the train and left. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Like you mentioned, it's kind of a, a tale of two cities here with, with the, the murder itself. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the ghost aspect of it. So with all these different suspects and this family is still dead in the house, what kind of happens then? Does this house become infamous over the next 60, 70, 80 years? Is it, does it still exist now? Or is there more details about the murder? I mean, you guys kind of let me know what, where we're at here because it seems like it's very frustrating when you have this multiple murder with an entire family in 1912 and they have no idea who did it. And I'm assuming kind of just moved on after they did an investigation for a while. And that was it. Technically never got solved. Right. The house does still stand today. They, this is one of those locations, kind of like the Sally house we had mentioned where they have opened it up to like paranormal tours and investigations. Basically I, there was this a family that moved in after we have uh, Linda Cloud and, and uh, Patty Williamson. These are two sisters, and they're uh, still around today, but they had lived in the house for a while. They are so terrified of this house to go back to it. I mean, there are some shows that have brought them in for interviews, and they are seen like hyperventilating in the house. They just can't handle it. 
they used to claim they heard little girls crying in the house and uh, they would frequently hear voices in the home and their parents just never believed that the place was haunted. And this was until one day their father, he was uh, sharpening a knife. And then they said they saw like an impression on his hand, like somebody grabbed his arm and then they, he jabbed the knife into himself. So he ended up like something forced their father. They all witnessed it to stab himself. And this is actually something that reoccurs later on. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But this was kind of the, the first inklings of, of this house being haunted. The girls said, and I, I'm sure the parents knew when they bought the house what happened in that house. But as far as I know, I don't think the girls knew that they were living in a house where this many people were murdered this brutally in this short amount of time. And we've mentioned it before on, on a lot of our episodes. When something this violent and this scary happens, it's not necessarily... Paul Miller haunting the house or the family that got murdered haunting the house. Well, I believe they're probably there too. Something as horrible and as traumatic as this can create something evil inside of that house. And they think that there could be something demonic inside of this house. And it is, it is widely regarded as one of the more haunted houses in the country. Mm. And there's a lot more that we're going to touch on. I think, do you guys want to continue on this? Uh, I know we have a little bit of a timeline from the, the man from the train. Cause this is this whole Paul Miller thing. It's so much bigger than just the Velisca ax murder house. It's insane. Right. The numbers itself are absolutely terrifying. The team of researchers who connected all these killings recently, they came to the conclusion that he had killed about 95 victims in over 38 different cases. Wow. Of families. So they traced it all the way back to the late 1890s when he, you know, very sloppily killed his employers. And then they say he hopped on a train and moved on. So there was a small, a small hiatus where he didn't kill anyone for a while that that we know of, that they were able to find out until about 1804. He killed a few families. Yeah, 1904. Sorry. Yeah. He went backwards in time. <laughs> yeah. It's an impressive train. <laughs> I know, really. So he went, he ended up in uh, Trenton, South Carolina. Basically, what he was doing was going from town to town and working as a lumberjack. He'd work for a short period of time and then he would kill a family and then he'd get back on the train right away God. and move on to the next town. Trenton, South Carolina was one. This was December 8th in 1904. Neighbors had found a house on fire, and it was the house of Benjamin Hughes. And they discovered the charred remains of Ben Hughes, his wife, Ava, and their daughters, Emma and Hattie. And they had found all the heads had been crushed with the blunt side of the axe. God. All of the faces of the victims had been covered. The house had been sealed up. All the windows were covered, and the lantern had been moved. He hopped on the train again. I know we keep mentioning the train. The train is super important. The reason that the train plays such a factor in these cases is because all of these murders, as Dave mentioned earlier, are in the vicinity of a railroad. And what would basically happen is, is this guy would kill an entire family. And then before anybody notices that the family is even dead, he's able to hop on a train because it's within walking distance. He probably sets a change of clothes near the train tracks or something, changes out of his bloody clothes, gets on the train. And by the time hours later that these bodies are discovered, he has a massive head start to get away and nobody has a clue who he is or whatever. I mean, he's not from the town. He probably showed up in the middle of the night and left a couple hours later. Right. The first thing these police do when they find these scenes is they start looking at the locals in the town. Like we said earlier, they'll pull the local drunk or the local thief and they'll start interrogating him. Meanwhile, this guy's on a train out of town. So I think that's how he got away with it for so long. 1904, there was a few. And then he ended up down in 1906, he ended up at uh, the Barber Junction train station in North Carolina, where the uh, where Isaac and Augusta Lyerly lived with their five children. And this house was also found on fire. And the 
Family was found inside, dead, skulls crushed with the blood side of the axe, all of them laying in bed. This one actually, three of the daughters actually escaped and they, they made it to the, uh, they put the fire out and made it to the, the mother's house. But again, the house had been sealed up, windows covered, the um, faces of the victims were covered and they found the lantern that had been moved. And another thing in this, I don't know if we mentioned it, that all of the cases that, that were linked together, no valuables have been taken from the property. Number one, you're able to rule out theft. It's not like a, a robbery or anything, like a that, robbery yeah. or anything like that. And there was always on every single one of these, there was valuables in the house that were left. And there was always an adolescent girl in almost every single case. So it always seemed that he was targeting a family that had like a 11 or 12 year old girl. We think this guy was also a creep like that. Like he, he had an attraction to kids, but the the police would still blame it on robbery. They'd be like, it was a robbery. It's like, there's $400 in the middle of the kitchen table. What do you mean? It was a robbery. Like right. if, if it was, if it was a, a robbery, they would have taken the money. They would have taken the gold. It even got to a point where they think this might've been his MO was not only was he not stealing things, he may have actually been leaving some money just to say that this might have been another one of his things. There was always some kind of valuables in plain sight. So whether he took took it and put it on top of the dresser just to show people like, hey, this ain't a robbery. This is me or something. I don't know. So did this guy ever get caught that we're talking about right now? No. No. So this was all put together recently, like within the oh, last I got 20 you. years or so. So this team of researchers basically went around and connected all of these cases and they say and it's impossible that it would be different people with the same doing the same exact thing. You know, it's more likely because you can they're all proximate to train stations. They're all proximate to train stations that were also near lumber yards. They deduced that this guy was most likely a traveling lumberjack who was just going from town to town, killing people and hopping on the next train. And time of year played a factor too. In the summer, it was always in the north of the country, and the winter it was always in the south of the country where the where the murders were taking place. So that's another reason why they thought he was a lumberjack. I think there's one more case we should get into before we start talking about the hauntings, though. And that's the one that happened in Colorado Springs. So September 1911, the wife and children of A.J. Burnham were at home in their house in Colorado Springs. A.J. was away. He was sick with tuberculosis. And Mary Alice Burnham, his wife, her sister walked to the house and found the doors locked, window shades all drawn. So she got the neighbor and they tried to open the door. And Nettie at this point remarked, oh, suppose we find Mary and her babies dead in the house. Wouldn't that be terrible? And they found exactly that. There were three victims. There was May Alice her son, John, and their daughter, Nellie, and the skulls had all been crushed with the blunt side of an axe. May and John had been killed in their sleep. Nellie had either awakened or her body was moved posthumously. And then there's something in the room that would later cause the chief detective to say that the killer was a, quote, moral pervert, but he didn't specify what that was. When the house was sealed up and the blinds were all drawn, valuables had been left untouched. Evidence of attempted arson was discovered. A bowl of bloody water had been found suggesting that the killer had tried to wash up. Jeez. And on the windowsill, they, were, they figured that he had fled that way because they found a bottle of ink that had been knocked over, spilling all over the place. So news was super quick to spread at the time, and all the families in the neighboring houses were all out in a panic, except for one family, which was the Burnham's next-door neighbors, the Waynes. So police knocked on the Waynes' door, and they found the body of Wayne, uh, sorry, they found the body of um, Henry and Blanche Wayne and their two-year-old daughter, Lula May, geez. as well. So he had killed this one family. He wasn't satisfied at that point. So he slips over to the neighbor's house and takes out that entire family. And what they think happened here is 
again, we talked about how he was like attracted to one of the, you know, younger girls of the family. He walked by, probably saw the two families playing together because they were neighbors. They were friends. He goes into this house to take out this family, realizes that the girl that he was looking for isn't in there. So he slips over to the neighbor's house and there she is and takes out that family. So just taking out entire families too, right? Entire families without them waking up. Yeah. And that's how, you know, he's done this. And again, all of this evidence is the same evidence as the Velisca house. And you just see it over and over and over again. So it's, it's not like ax murders were super uncommon at the time, but Axe murders, where they're going in, taking out entire families, locking up the house, covering the windows, covering the mirrors, moving the lantern, moving the bodies, and a lot of cases burning down the house to cover up the evidence as well. It's beyond impossible for it not to be the same guy. Of course, of course, of course. But but once again, like you said, it, it, it would take a modern detective eye to be able to see that. And it's so obvious to us, but at the time... You know, South Carolina didn't know what North Carolina were doing, or even right. South Carolina County and North, you know, South Carolina West County. I mean, there's, I'm sure every single time you went to a new jurisdiction, they didn't know. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It, they just never talked to each other. It's, and it's crazy to think of now, but I mean, think of how hard it was just to send a letter to a loved one back then. You had the Pony Express, basically. These guys were dying to send, hi, I love you and I miss you letters because it's right. such a freaking thing to just get across the country at that point it's a tough time and it basically if you were of this mental mind state that you were so messed up that you were a serial killer you were able to get away with almost whatever you wanted as long as you weren't a complete idiot yep so a lot a lot of these houses got burnt down as we said a lot of them were older houses a lot of these were in poor neighborhoods or just such small neighborhoods that they were completely they didn't have a police force or there was like one cop in the neighborhood. Right. And this was kind of his MO right. also with it being close to a train yard for his escape. But Velisca is one of the houses that still stands today. And that's why we focus on this one. I mean, it's still standing today and it's supposed to be super haunted. I mean, like, like there's been multiple ghost shows that have gone there. There's been plenty of investigations and it actually has a weird tie in. We had mentioned this actually on our last podcast together was with the Sally house. So the Sally house and this house, they have like the same address, which is weird. They're in completely different states. But what is it, 508 Second Street or something? One's 508 like North Second, one's 508 East, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, it's basically the same address, which is weird. There's other connections as well, which is strange. Mm-hmm. For one, I mean, this one means nothing, but the area code, we mentioned it, I think, on the last show too, but the area code in Fall River, New Bedford, or whatever the wherever the Lizzie Borden house is, is 508 as well. But wow, I don't yeah. think it's anything to do with it. It's a little bit more eerie that these ones basically have the same address, but there are actually other connections as well. So Deb and Tony, Tony Pickman, they actually visited and did an overnight at the Velisca Axe Murder House. And as soon as Tony stepped in there, he said, whatever was at the Sally House is here. It's like the same thing. Oh, wow. And what's even more striking is the sketch of Sally that was done of like the ghost Sally. Yeah. It's like a spitting image of Catherine Moore, which is one of the victims oh at, at the, the Velisca house. It's actually kind of creepy. So th- there's, wow. it's a very strange tie-in. And just for him to say like that, the, the same feeling that he got at, at the Sally house, which we mentioned is probably the most haunted house in the country, maybe in the world to step into this house and say, you got the same thing. It leads me to believe and leads a lot of these investigators to believe that there is something dark and there is something evil inside this house. 
And you go back to Velisca being supposedly tried to, they try to name it Beautiful Place and it gets named Evil Spirit for the name of the town. So it's just another weird little tie-in. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Other tie-ins. I mean, th- th- there's a lot of similarities between the type of hauntings that happen in this place. Investigators have been scratched. One of them, um, it seemed to make like an L-shaped scratch. And I think we mentioned on that one, it's almost like it has like a claw situation going on there where it's scratching with two down the middle and then one that kind of goes across. Same kind of scratch that happened in the Sally house. You've had other investigators being poked, grabbed. They'll tug on your shirts. So they think that there's something evil in this house. They also think that there's the haunting from the young children in the house as well. And they think that they're more friendly spirits. Yeah. But as we've mentioned before, whenever you have a friendly spirit, it could be something evil trying to play off that it's something friendly to take your guard down. You know who's living large at my house? My three cats, Mr. Mittens, Indy, and Snickers. And you know why? Because we switched them to Pretty Litter. Okay, so it's really me and my wife and my daughters who are living large, thanks to Pretty Litter. Because Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so no more bad cat smells in the bathroom. Pretty Litter crystals last up to a month, so less cat litter box cleaning for all of us, and less fighting about whose turn it is to clean the litter box. I gotta deal with this fight every single week between my daughters. This makes it so much easier. Pretty Litter also ships right to our front door, so no more last-minute mad scramble runs to the store because we're out of kitty litter. And Pretty Litter has another cool feature that makes life just a little easier. It helps us keep tabs on our cat's health. It changes colors so you can monitor early signs of potential illnesses like urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's easily the best thing we've done for ourselves and our cats in a very long time. Like I said, Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. Those are two big wins in my house, meow. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. So go to prettylitter.com slash Jericho and use code Jericho to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash Jericho. Code Jericho to save 20%. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yes, a quick question here. When you were talking about the uh, connection between the Sally House and the Velisca House, have you heard of this before? Of like different houses with kind of the similar, like it seems like this entity could have possessed both houses. I think what we have in so many of these cases, and as we're reviewing more and more haunted locations, I mean, we're covering two, sometimes three of them a week at this point. When we're reviewing the evidence and reviewing findings from these different paranormal teams, we have like a bingo list of similar haunts that are in every single place. You see a woman in a white dress, you get the knocking, you get the footsteps, child laughing. These are just like the most common things that you get in all of these houses. So do I think it's the actual same entity that's haunting both of these houses? I don't think so. I don't think they're connected at all. So no, I don't think it's the same spirit, but could it be a similar type of haunting? Absolutely. Could they both be demonic? Absolutely. Got it. This is definitely the first time I've heard of like two major haunted houses this far apart being connected like that, though. Mm -hmm. You always hear, like Jesse was saying, you hear like similar things like footsteps knocking, whatever. For them to be connected directly like that, I've I've never heard that in any other case. Yeah, because like yeah, that 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 just stood out for me, especially when you said that the painting looked exactly like one of the victims and all these other things. So, can you still go in this house now? Are people still having events? And where is it, by the way? Where, where is it? It's in Iowa, Villisca, Iowa. Okay, so, okay Villisca, gotcha. Sally House is still my number one that I need to get to, but Villisca is right up there. They do allow overnight stays and stuff like that. And there are 
a family that bought the house in the 1990s, I believe. And they tried to make it look exactly like it looked in 1912. And one of the things I like that this family does in particular is they leave a book out for the people that visit. And these people are encouraged to write down their experiences. Now, instead of leaving the book out for everyone that comes in to read it, they don't get to see what other people wrote until after. And basically they start to see like the common themes of what people are seeing in the house. So they're able to kind of say like, Oh, these people experienced this, but so did this person, this person, this person, and this person. Yeah. So instead of telling you what people are experiencing, people are getting their own experiences and a lot of it is overlapping. A lot of it's matching. So a lot of that, there's been multiple reports of these like shadow figures that are in the basement of the house mm-hmm. and they'll move around and they will also, there's also growling that you hear from down there. And there has been so many crazy EVPs that have been captured from this house. Uh, Ghost Adventures did an episode there and theirs was pretty compelling. A lot of times with these network TV shows, I watch them and it's just basically entertainment. You know, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what not to believe. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah, exactly. But what they did on this show was they brought in one of the authors. He wrote a book on this. This guy was like a police officer for 20 years, kind of a no nonsense guy. He came in, it was Roy Marshall. That was his name. And this guy, you could tell right off the bat, this guy doesn't believe in anything. He told him, he's like, hey, listen, if you try to BS me, I'm going to call it out. And so they had taken extra steps to show you like that while he was in the building, they weren't doing anything that could have been messed around with. Like they showed the voice recorder. They showed the voice recorder had absolutely no files on it. So one of the common things that I think a lot of skeptics think when they see live EMF stuff where basically, you know, they turn on the voice recorder and they say, is anybody here with me? And then they're like, all right, let's do a quick review. And then they'll play it back and it'll say, you'll hear the recording say, is anybody here with me? And then you'll hear hear a ghost say, it's George or something like that. A lot of people, what they think is like, okay, they probably pre-recorded that. They had the file saved there. Sure, maybe they recorded, but then they just played their pre-recorded file, which they had pre-scripted or whatever. That That is like the skeptic view on these things. So with this one, they had a clear voice recorder, no voice recordings. And the voice, the EVP that they caught was absolutely chilling. I believe, yeah, it had said quite clearly they call this a class a evp it said i killed six kids wow and that was what the evp said and it was like chilling like you get goosebumps listening to that so that was pretty cool the rest of it could have been here or there could have been entertainment at that point you know the guy stuck around for a little bit but he didn't stick around for the whole thing so they a lot of silly things happened in that episode but still solid and like i said for ghost adventures and for the other shows that went in there a lot of the evps are pretty similar they've also caught you know when they say like the common you know who is here with me They've gotten replies from multiple of the kids' names. So, and this is not just by the YouTube channels and that, but they cross-reference that with the notes. And this is an EVP that comes through a lot, which is why they think that the kids are also haunting the place. But not a lot of stuff from the parents. You never hear anything from like the parents from what I've seen. It's either the kids or this dark entity. Another good story from this place is the caretaker that takes care of the place. That's real redundant. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's Johnny, right? <laughs> yeah. So he 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 didn't believe in anything when he started working here. And one day he was in the house and he had told his staff not to come. He was going to work on some stuff. He didn't want anyone there. And he's upstairs and he hears somebody open the front door and walk in. And now he's annoyed. He told nobody to come. He's working on stuff. So he hears them start walking towards the staircase. So he decides, you know what? They want to not listen. I'm going to scare the hell out of them, basically. So he goes into the closet in the bedroom that he's in. He listens to this person walk up the stairs very slowly, start walking down the hallway, and open the door to the room that he's in. He hears them walk into that room, and he jumps out of the closet to scare them, and there's nobody there. Wow. 
So then he starts like looking around the top <laughs> floor to find this person. They're not there. He walks down the stairs trying to see where they are. There's no cars in the driveway. There is nobody else there. And they could not have gotten away as quick as they did. So at this point, he's a believer. That's so crazy, right? Yeah, it's wild. Like when you hear stuff like that, because that it just brings me back to like my personal experiences with that. I've I've had that same similar situation happen multiple times at the uh, house that I grew up in. It's terrifying. We had mentioned earlier, this was back before they even really knew that the house was haunted. The the case where the father of the house actually stabbed himself. Something very similar and very scary happened more recently. There was an investigation going on and there was a guy, he's sitting on a bed and he's trying to like provoke, right? So he's he's doing what they tell you not to do, which is provoking the evil entities in the house. And they'll tell you like, like hey, listen, if you go in there and you want a kid to roll the ball across the floor the kids will roll the ball across the floor. They'll play with you. If you come in there and you try to provoke something evil, something evil is going to do something bad. And this could happen in this house because they feel like you have both sides of the paranormal field there, evil and good. So uh, they advise against doing this sort of thing that this guy was doing. I believe the story is he saw a light from the closet that was basically telling him to, to kill himself. And then next thing he knew, he had stabbed him. He drove a knife into his own chest. Oh my gosh. Am I getting that story right? I, I'm not, I don't have the notes in front of me. Yeah, that's basically what happened there. And he heard a voice. He saw the light. And he grabs the knife and he stabs himself in the chest. The rest of his paranormal team calls the cops. I can't remember if he was rushed to the hospital or airlifted. But he's in the hospital. He tells the cops what happened to him. To this day, he will not speak of it. And he's never accepted interview requests or anything like that. Because when you hear this story... My initial impression when I read it was like, he did it on purpose. He wanted to be part of the story. He wanted to tell one of the best ghost stories ever where a ghost hit him with an ax or something like that. But if that were the case, he'd be doing interviews. He'd be trying to write a book or something like that. And another interesting part of this is he's not the only one that's felt this when he's gone there. There's been multiple reports that he wouldn't have known about of people feeling this entity almost take over them, they start to black out or they start to collapse and they have to get out of the house. Yeah, specifically this dark entity that's in this house, whatever it is, is trying to convince people to hurt themselves. Hmm. You saw it with this guy. You may have seen it with the father that stabbed himself as well. And multiple people report, it's like, I'm getting these angry visions and these angry things that is either telling me to hurt myself or hurt somebody else. So that's, that's where like the demonic side comes in couple that with people getting scratched and bit and pushed and poked and everything. So whenever you have violent stuff like that, it tends to take things away from the idea of maybe it's a poltergeist in the house and maybe it's something a little bit more demonic because you also have doors slamming. You have just your typical stuff, you know, like, like a, the tropes. Yeah. Yep. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It's interesting to me when, let's for example say Lizzie Borden. Everyone knows Lizzie Borden. They know the whole story. This case is so interesting in Villisca here, the Villisca Axe Murders, he even got an interesting name. Why haven't we heard of this before? Is it because they never caught anybody? Or they, it's very strange to me. 
I was gonna say this one's kind of like the Sally House, where it's like both of these like were kind of like I didn't really hear about them until we started looking into them because they weren't mainstream. It's because I think there's there's no movies made about them. Right, 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 right. All the huge hauntings, they, there's you know the Conjuring, Amityville. There's there's movies made about them, so they're and I think that's probably why we don't hear about this one and other ones like it so much. But if you go to Iowa, everybody in Iowa knows the story of the Velisca Axe murder house. Anyone you go to in that state will know it. It's just one of those local things where like it didn't take off across the country. But if you go to that state and you say Velisca, they're going to be like, oh, the axe murders. Right. That's It's just the way that that goes. It's one of those things that it's like you either know it or you don't. But if you know it, you know all about it. Yep. One of the my assistants or whatever here in AW is from Kansas City. And he said, dude, I listened to your podcast about the Sally House, like, or from Kansas. Like, I know all about that. Everyone knows about it from where I'm from. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, wow, because I'd never heard of it. But like you said, the local people know the local stories. Did he say we got it all wrong? I hope. I hope. (laughs) No, no, no. He said it was pretty good. He actually, I think he said either he had been there or his mom had been there. But it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, everything they said is, is that's the story. And everyone knows it, you know, so. Yeah. Those guys from Boston don't know anything about Kansas. <laughs> now now we're going to deal with it in Iowa. We're get, we're coming on your show like every six months just to get blackballed in another state. Yeah. That's kind of the goal here. <laughs> hey, you got bloody disgusting, man. You don't need Kansas anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we right. keep saying we every time we do an episode, we want to visit this place. Now it's every time we do your show, we're just getting banned from those places. <laughs> yeah. Getting everything wrong. We'll see how bad we butchered this story. No pun intended. Yeah. Good call. The problem with this story is you asked me if we could do an hour on it and i sat there and i kind of laughed i'm like if i wanted to do five hours on this story i could do five hours on this story we kind of condensed everything that we could into it the, pr- the problem with this one is condensing it into an hour yeah that's that's kind of the issue with Velisca because there's there's just so much to go over on this story well and like, and like i said as, as we start to wind down here have we covered it all though because it seemed like it's been very detailed and all the stuff that you guys talked about on both sides of the coin we covered all pretty much all of Velisca, all of the murders that were committed by this M- Miller guy. I mean, there's like 38 of them. So if you want to hang out for another day and a half, we'll probably hit them all. But you could do a show just on that guy. What's his name? Paul? Yeah, Paul Miller. Paul Miller. Yeah, you could do a show just on him. Well, do you want to hit on one more? That's kind of fun that he might have done or might not have done. Yeah, this is my favorite one. Have you have you ever heard of? Oh, my God. Now I can't say the Hinterkaifeck. Hinterkaifeck in Germany. No. So Hinterkaifeck in Germany is one of the most known axe murders that happened in Germany. I'll let Dave get into it a little bit more. He knows a little more than me about it. But as the murders stop in America, this happens and this guy's from Germany. So they figured one of three things could have happened after the murders stopped in America. They either figured he went to prison, he got caught for something else, whether it was breaking into somebody's house with an axe or something like that or right. or whatever so he either went to prison or he died so at this you know the guy started in killing people in the late 1800s and all the way up to 1912 he's probably in his late 30s 40s 50s by this point he could have died you know 1912 people don't live that long right that was the second option the other option was he went back home to germany so right around the time that the murders in the united states stopped happening right around this guy's hometown in germany was the Hinterkaifeck axe murders. And the MO or some of the details that happened on that one was the family was killed with the blunt side of the axe. Their faces were covered. The house was locked and all the windows were covered up. So pretty much the exact same 
details with this murder that were tied to this guy over there. And the timeline adds up where they stopped in America and you had Hinterkaifeck. Hmm. So it's kind of a reach. Uh, they say it's probably a 40% chance that that could be the same guy, but it's pretty coincidental if not. I don't think it's a reach. I think it's 100% him. <laughs> That's the story. I moved on to Germany. Wow. Well, it's either that or people like to try to connect one case to another. So another famous one in America is, you've heard of H.H. H. Holmes? Of course. The, the murder house, right? Yeah, the murder house. Well, have you heard of the theory that he could have been Jack the Ripper? No, that sounds like that's our next show. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole theory that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Wow. See, because I've known that story, but I've never delved into it. So there's a whole, like, I'm not even kidding. There's a whole show there. And I didn't even realize that they had tied him to Jack the Ripper as well. Oh, yeah. A, the H.H. H. Holmes. I know we're a ghost show, but I love true crime just as much as I love the, the paranormal stuff. So the H.H. H. Holmes stories has always been one of the most fascinating ones to me. Well, guys, I mean, like I said, I, I think that'd be a good place to to stop, and the, the, that's our cliffhanger for the <laughs> next uh, episode. Let me, let me say this to you guys: Listen, sure. The first show we did, you guys were like three, you know, up and comers. Like, you know, you you had it all figured out, and you had your turn, and you had your turn. But now I can tell the difference in how much more experienced you guys are even in six months or whatever it's been. So congratulations. Like it's, you can see you guys are really getting in the groove here. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks. We appreciate it. You lit a fire under our ass by bringing us on the show the first time. We're like, oh geez, people are taking us seriously. We better, <laughs> we better buckle down. And it's a big deal, <laughs> yeah. man. Well, like I said, you got a whole set now and you got logos and yeah, great stuff. And once again, it's one of those places. If you're ever in Iowa, in Villisca, Iowa, go by and check it out. So, Dudes, great talking to you, and uh, let's do this every couple months. You can now be regular contributors to Talk is Jericho for sure. Sounds good, my man. Thanks again for having us on, dude. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, buddy.